My brother-in-law is a naval aviator. But uh, when he first joined the Navy, they didn't immediately, on his very first day, put him in the cockpit of an airplane. Uh, hardly surprisingly, they spent a lot of time, and in that instance, a, a lot of money in order to train and to prepare him to be able to uh, fly these aircraft. But you know what? You don't just have to be a Navy pilot in order to understand that there is preparation that needs to take place for different things that we do. If you're a teacher or a nurse, if you're a a, a plumber, in fact, for that matter, in most professions that we might have, we understand that there are some things that we've got to learn, both maybe in a formal setting as well as in an informal setting. There are some things we've got to experience. There are some ways in which we have to be equipped if we are to be properly prepared for what we're going to face. And, uh, you know, as we have been traveling together in recent weeks through this series that we're calling Conversations with Jesus, we have, uh, we've seen a number of different conversations that Jesus has had with different individuals. But this morning we're going to come to a, a, a little bit of a transition in John's gospel, a, a place where we're going to move away from what we've seen in the first 12 chapters or so where Jesus' ministry has mainly been focused on, on those uh, in the crowd, those uh, in the public, uh, to a time in the book of John where now we come to what's often referred to as the upper room discourse, a time of particular preparation of the disciples. We're going to spend a little bit of time together this morning uh, listening in, if you like, on this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, really just a matter of hours before he's going to go to the cross. Because I want to suggest to you that just as those disciples who were gathered in that upper room back then, nearly 2,000 years ago, needed to be prepared for what lay ahead of them, so still today, for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, there is an important preparation that takes part in our lives so that we are ready to be the servants of Christ that he calls us to be. Now, uh, I don't want to suggest for even a moment that when a person comes to faith in Christ that we should sequester them away for some prolonged period of time so that they learn and know everything before they ever step out. Certainly, discipleship is important. But as we journey through this life, there are things that we need to understand or a part of our preparation to be used as servants of Christ. So join me this morning in John chapter 13. John chapter 13, and we're going to be looking together beginning in verse 1 and seeing what this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples looks like. John 13, beginning in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
want to stop there for a moment because even though this kind of gives us a little bit of a, a, a perspective on where we are in the Gospel of John, there's something that's really important that we understand here. First of all, this is right before the Passover, so it helps us to understand that this, as, as I mentioned, is just a matter of hours before Jesus will be betrayed, will be put on a trial by a, a, a mock court, will be crucified will die. And it says, interestingly enough, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world. You see, all through John's gospel, we see this phrase, his hour had not yet come. We see it in in chapter 2, verse 4. We see it in chapter 7, verse 30. We see it in chapter 8, verse 20. It's alluded to over and over again that his time has not yet come. But here we're told that Jesus knew that this was the moment, this was the hour, this was the time. And one of the things we have to understand is that before even the foundations of the earth, in the wisdom of the Godhead, in in the relationship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it had already been determined and planned that Jesus Christ would go to the cross to bear the sins of fallen humanity. Uh, Some people suggest that Jesus kind of pushed the envelope with the religious leaders one too many times and got himself killed. Simply not true. Uh, Some people... um, consider Jesus to be a good moral teacher and a good example of how we should live. And yes, there's there's truth to that, but it doesn't just end there. We must, when we are talking about the person of Jesus Christ, understand that the purpose for which he came, the, the purpose for which God became man taking on human flesh and dwelling amongst us was for this moment, for this hour, to lay himself down as a sacrifice for our sins. And so John doesn't want us to miss the significance that Jesus knew his hour had come. He goes on to say, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And even as we've already sung this morning, reminds us of the relentless love of Christ, of the stead fast love of our Savior, for His love for those who are His, His people, His redeemed, His chosen ones, and that that is a never-ending, never-failing love. Verse 2, it says, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Again, we've got another important statement here. We're going to see a lot uh, um, uh, talked about Judas and, and his upcoming betrayal. But I want us just to be clear, even before we get into this conversation, that while it says here that the devil had already put it into Judas Iscariot's heart, this is not a the devil made me do it situation. This is referring to the fact that Satan held out the temptation to Judas. But Judas, throughout the New Testament, is always held responsible as the one who sins, the one who 
betrays. So this is not some uh, a situation where we can just kind of look at Judas and we can say, well, you know, the devil caused him to do this. No, he was tempted by the devil to do this. And with this in mind, understanding these things, look with me at verse 3. We see that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the feet of the disciples and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, then Lord, uh, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. And so uh, as we look over this passage this morning, we're going to see that we must be properly prepared if we are to live as true servants of Christ. But we see that the, the first part, if you like, of that preparation is that the true servant of Christ must first be clean seems a little strange that, 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 that the, the first part of our preparation of, of the true servant of, of Christ would be take a bath. But that's kind of the idea that we get from this passage. But what I want you to see is that Jesus, who is over all things, humbly washes the feet of his disciples. In fact, it almost leaves us scratching our head when in verse 3 we see a statement like Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, gets down and starts washing feet. What we're seeing here is a reminder of the fact that Jesus is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. He is the supreme authority in all. All the universe, everything, everything, all things are under his command. There is nothing but nothing that is outside of the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ. And so it seems mind-bendingly staggering. That after a statement reminding us of that, the next thing that we see him do is to take off his outer garment, to lay it aside, to take up a towel and wrap it around his waist and get down and start washing feet. It's interesting that uh, John uses here uh, a word. He doesn't say that Jesus took off his outer garment. It says he laid it aside. And he took up the towel. The reason that that's interesting is the last time we saw John use those words was when Jesus in John chapter 10 said, I lay aside my life that I might take it up again. 
but we have this wonderful uh, picture that is played out for us here. As, uh, as he begins to go around, presumably to several of the disciples first, and, and wash their feet. Now, one of the things that's so staggering about this is that Jesus would do this because, you see, it was not an uncommon thing. In fact, it was a very customary thing in Jewish culture to have your feet washed when you entered into somebody's home. It was a sign of hospitality. It was a a, a sign of welcome. You see, um, they would travel in in, in open-toed sandals. Uh, the, the, The roads that they walked upon were extremely dusty. And so when you entered into someone's home, one of the very first things that would happen is they would call the lowest of the slaves to come and wash your feet. And it was always the lowest of the slaves. In fact, uh, documents that we have found seem to indicate the fact that this was such a menial task that if you had a group of slaves, it was only the one who was the lowest who would perform this task. And if, and, and if you had a Jewish slave, you could never ask him to perform this task because it was beneath him. Only Gentile slaves would do this. And here we see Jesus doing this. He goes first to one, we assume, and then perhaps to several others. And then finally he comes to Peter. And Peter starts off, he says, Would you wash my feet? Uh, He's outraged by this. He understands how utterly inappropriate it is that Jesus, the teacher, the master, would wash his feet. And Jesus says, what I am doing, you do not understand. But afterward, you will understand. Now, in a few minutes, uh, within this passage, we're going to see Jesus explaining a portion of what he is doing here in washing his feet. But he's actually pointing even further ahead. And he's letting Peter and the disciples know, you're not going to grasp the fullness of what I'm doing here until later, until after the cross, until after the resurrection. But then you'll get it. Then you'll understand. And of course, you know, Peter then goes from outraged that he would do this to his typical attitude of, well, I'm all in if you're going to wash me. Do the whole thing, Jesus. Here I am. Hands and head. Why stop at the feet? I got to believe that Jesus had a smirk on his face as he answered. He's like, Peter, you see, Peter understood what Jesus was saying. He didn't understand the fullness of it, but when Jesus said to him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me, Peter was, well, well, I want all of you. I want to be all in. And Jesus then says something perplexing. He says, the one who has had a bath does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. And then again, it says, verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, not all of you are clean. So clearly, he's not just talking here about personal hygiene. He's not just instructing them about about needing a bath. I have to do that sometimes with my kids, my son in particular. But that's not what he's doing. And he's not setting up some rule here. He's not saying, Peter, listen, 
You don't get to sit at the table and eat with us unless your feet are clean. No, there's something more going on here. When he says, unless you are washed, unless you are cleansed, you have no part of me. And what he's actually saying here is that only those who have been washed by Jesus are truly his. And the washing that he is pointing to here is not so much about the washing of the feet or the taking a bath. It is about a deeper cleansing. It is about a true washing that Jesus provides through his death and his resurrection. It is a washing from sin. It is a a dealing with our sins and, and, and cleansing us so that we are made righteous, pure, holy, forgiven in the sight of our holy God. But why is he talking about the bath and then the washing of the feet? Well, you see, this is a very important thing that we need to understand. When a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, when they receive forgiveness from their sin for their sins, that is a once and for all time cleansing, washing. In fact, in uh, in the book of Titus, it speaks about this. And it it gives a wonderful picture of what it is that Christ has done for us. And then the ministry of the Holy Spirit on our behalf. It says in Titus chapter 3, But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So there's this, this picture of a one-time bathing, washing, cleansing, a, a dealing with our sins so that we stand forgiven before God. But just like somebody who would travel those dusty paths uh, still needed to have their feet washed even though they were clean, so it's also true in the Christian life that the follower of Christ must keep short accounts with God concerning our sin. Because you see, as we journey through the dusty path of this life, as we wage war with the flesh, as we struggle against sin and temptation, we need to continue daily to come before God for cleansing. Not because we can lose our salvation. Because Scripture is abundantly clear that we cannot. If you're in Christ, you're held securely in His hand. And not because the cleansing didn't stick the first time around. No, but because there is a fellowship, there is an intimacy of relationship with Christ that must be preserved and maintained through coming to him over again each day and dealing with the things in there. In fact, in 1 John, same author as the Gospel of John, in 1 John, we find uh, these words in chapter 1. 
If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we, for, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And do you know what? That's written to believers. What an incredible promise. But so was Jesus here is washing their feet. He's explaining this situation to Peter. He's talking about two types of washing. He's talking about, he's talking about the necessity of being made clean through faith in Christ as our sins are forgiven. And he's talking about the fellowship that we are to maintain, just like those feet being washed. But we're reminded here that only those who have been washed by Jesus are truly his. He says, if you haven't been washed, then you have no share with me. Notice that Jesus says in verses 10 and 11 that not every one of you is clean. You know, sometimes people would de- will debate the question, so uh, um, will we see Judas in heaven? Now, certainly we don't uh, see Uh, all of what happens after the betrayal. We see that probably out of uh, great guilt and despair, Judas hangs himself. But at least as we have recorded in Scripture, we have no indication that he was truly repentant. And right here in this passage, at least, it it, it speaks of the fact that, that, that he is not clean. He has not been washed like the others have. But here's the important thing that we take away from this. We have to understand, if we are true servants of Christ, there is no middle ground. Either we are clean, either we have experienced the forgiveness of our sins, or we are not. We cannot sit on the fence. We cannot play games surrounding this. And we cannot... Put ourselves in a place and say, well, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus, but, but you know, I, I, I don't need forgiveness because I'm a pretty good person. You just can't. Why? Because we must humble ourselves before Almighty God, recognizing that we have fallen short of His perfect and holy standard without a conviction of sin. We don't understand that we truly need a Savior. Friends, it may be that for some of us, we're here this morning, but we do not know that we know that the living God has washed us clean of our sins that we cannot earnestly, with the Spirit prompting us to shout out, Hallelujah, declare, I know that there is therefore now no condemnation for me because I am in Christ Jesus. That's you. Do not leave here today. Do not fool yourself into thinking that you are a true servant of Christ if you have never been washed clean. For some of us, we maybe soberly need to examine 
this issue because, you see, if you don't have a keen awareness of your sinfulness, of a continuing to struggle and wage war against sin, then it may be, it may be that you have never truly experienced this cleansing because part of the work of the Holy Spirit and the life of the people of God is to convict them of sin, not to pour guilt upon them, but to remind them to keep coming back into fellowship and experiencing the cleansing that is found in Christ Jesus. Those who are followers of Jesus will become increasingly more aware of their sinfulness. I cannot tell you the number of times that I've met with a young believer and they have said to me, Pastor, I think I think that there's something wrong. I don't know if I'm a Christian because, because I, I feel like I'm sinning more now than I ever did before. I said, no. I said, You should celebrate in the fact that you feel that way because now your eyes have been opened to your sinfulness and your need of Christ. Now you have a greater sensitivity to that which before you were calloused to. So this starts, this conversation starts with cleansing. Part of our preparation, the beginning of our preparation as servants of Christ, is that the true servant must first be clean. But the text continues, and and as it does, we see that the true servant of Christ must be a servant of others. Look with me, verse 12. When he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments, and he resumed his place. And he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And so after washing their feet, Jesus points them to his own example of Humble, self-giving service. Now, one of the things I want to make clear is, uh, although there have been a, a, a few small groups of people who, who practice this, uh, th- th- this foot washing, throughout the history of the church, this has never been a widely observed ordinance. And I don't think here that Jesus is giving this as an ordinance. It's certainly not like uh, the, the celebration of the Lord's Supper or of baptism. But rather what he is doing here is he's presenting to his disciples then and to us the example that we are to follow, the principle that we are to take from this. And that is, is one of humble, self-giving service. You see, again, we're reminded of the fact that all things are in his hands, that he has all authority, and yet he humbles himself to serve in this way. There is no place in the life of the servant of Christ for an attitude that says, I'm not going to do that. That's beneath me. There is no uh, place in the life of a servant of Christ to come together 
in the church and then to complain because our needs are not being met. And well, I would serve if they just did what they were supposed to do for me first. Folks, we can't make that excuse. Christ Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a a ransom for many. And there's no place in the servant of Christ for an attitude that says, I'm not going to serve in children's ministry or other than the landscaping team. When will these people recognize the leadership gifts that I have? Because you know what? If you are overqualified to serve in those areas, then you are nowhere near qualified to serve in leadership in the church. Because we don't follow the CEO model. We don't follow the how, look imp- how impressive my resume model is. We follow Jesus Christ, the one who washes feet. And he tells his disciples, and not just them, but us who are his people, that we are to have the very same attitude, that we are to serve one another in the same way. The book of Romans chapter 12, we have instruction after instruction. It's a wonderful chapter. One of my favorite verses in there, it says, outdo one another in showing honor. Now, I'm kind of a competitive person, so, um, so when, it, when it says outdo, it's like, yeah, Bring it on. You're going to serve me? Well, I'm going to serve you more. You're going to love me? Well, I'm going to love you more. There's a sense in which that ought to be our attitude. How can I humbly, how can I sacrificially serve? You know, I was up in Menards, up in Woodstock, just a little while ago, and um, I was standing in the checkout line. And there was just one person in front of me. They were being checked out. And I've got to tell you, I was getting irritated with this person because I overheard what they were saying to the checkout clerk. They were complaining. They were belittling. They were saying things like, um, uh, oh, you don't know anything. You're useless. Clearly, the only reason you're working here is because you can't get a job anywhere else. And I'm starting... I'm kind of like, okay, how am I going to handle this? I've got to say something. Gotta say. But then they said something that dumbfounded me for a moment. They said, oh, and did you remember to put in my tax-exempt number? And they reeled off the name of a church and his phone number. And then they got irritated because the clerk didn't get the phone number right the first time because they had spat it out with such disdain. So I waited until after that person left. And I said, I'm so sorry that you had to experience that. That is wrong, and I think you're doing a great job. And can I just tell you, that is not what true Christianity really looks like. Sometimes we forget that we are ambassadors of Christ, that we are his representatives before a lost and hurting and watching world. And sometimes the reason that we are lousy representatives when we are out there 
because we're not practicing very much in here. This instruction is given to the disciples as to how they are to love and serve one another within the body, within the fellowship of believers. That's where it begins. If we had the time, we would go through through the end of this chapter. We don't have the time to get there, but this chapter ends and Jesus says, the world will know that you are my disciples. How? By the love you have one for another. So how are you serving? How are you pouring yourself out for the sake of somebody else? Is there an area of your life that you need to bring before God and you need to say, God, I have, my attitude has stunk. Would you forgive me? Because I have been acting as if it was all about me and everybody else serving me. And I don't want to do that anymore. I want to do things the way that Jesus did it. Because if all authority belongs to him and yet he served, then I sure can serve. If Jesus was not overqualified to wash their feet, neither are you and neither am I. So the true servant of Christ first must be clean, then must be a servant of others. But there's one more way, just very briefly that he prepares his disciples here. We see this in verse 18 through 20. I am not speaking, he says, of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's a quote from Psalm 41.9. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. What's he saying? Well, true servants of Christ are confident in his sovereign plan, and they firmly believe on him even when things may not make sense. What, what, what we're seeing here is that throughout this passage, and if we had time even into the, 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 the passage that comes next, Jesus is speaking of his betrayal by Judas. But he, he, he's letting his disciples know, hey, you need to understand something really important here. And what you need to understand is this. This is not happening accidentally. When all of this that's about to happen goes down, don't worry. Don't fear that something went wrong. This is to fulfill the Scriptures. This is according to the plan and the purpose of God from eternity past. And I'm letting you in on that, even though it may not make sense to you right now but so that you can understand that even when something unexpected happens, even when something that you would never choose comes to pass, God is still working to accomplish his purposes because his plans and his purposes cannot be thwarted. Do you believe that? Just as it says in Romans chapter 8, that God works all things, that's all things, for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. God is at work. He was at work in the betrayal. He wants his disciples to be prepared. He wants to equip them with the knowledge of his good and sovereign plan so that they can have confidence in him, no matter what comes.
comes to pass, no matter when they can't see all that they want to see because it's clouded by the difficult circumstances that they are in the midst of. This is a reminder for us today as well that nothing takes God by surprise, that nothing can thwart his good purposes, that nothing that is in your life today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is going to waste. Nothing. Nothing. Because all things have been placed into his hands. He has authority over all things, and there is nothing that is outside of his command. And so our passage closes with Jesus reminding his disciples and those of us who are true servants, washed clean, humbly serving and confident in his greatness, that we are sent out by him to a lost world as messengers of the good news. And that as we go, we go in the authority of our Lord. Look at this. Truly, truly, verse 20, I say to you, whoever receives the one, I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. As a prepared people, we are to go. As his servants and his messengers on his mission and in his power and his his authority and in his name. And when people listen and when they respond and when they believe, they're not so much receiving us as they are receiving him who sends us. And when they refuse to listen and when they refuse to respond or when they refuse to believe, they are not so much rejecting us as they are rejecting the one who sends us. Either way, we're to show ourselves true servants by being rightly prepared. And having been prepared, we are to go out in his name. How do we respond to this? We've already talked about these things. But we respond first by being cleansed, come to Christ and be made clean. We respond by confessing where we have failed to be a humble uh, and and Christ-like servant and ask the Lord to use you to love and serve his people. We respond by giving thanks to God that he is working out his sovereign plan and purposes and let that truth give you a joyful confidence. And we respond as we remember that if indeed you are in Christ, you have been sent on a mission and in his authority. And folks, as those who are prepared by Christ, let's get to it. Let's get to it. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are amazed that you, Lord Jesus, the one who holds all authority in heaven and on earth, would come as a humble servant, give your life, laying it down in our place and taking it up again in victory. Lord, I pray that we, each and every one of us, would know what it is to have received your cleansing, the forgiveness of sins that you purchased for us at the cross of Calvary. And should there be any here who today cannot say that my sins are forgiven and know the joy of that, I ask that by your Holy Spirit that you would prompt them even now to cry out, saying, Lord, I have sinned. I am a sinner. Forgive me that I have gone my own way instead of yours, that I have tried to live for my own agenda and my own plan and my own glory instead of yours. I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. 
that he died in my place to pay my debt, my sin. Please forgive me. From this moment forward, I don't want to live my own way anymore. I want to live for you as your true servant. Wash me clean and make me yours. And Father, I pray that indeed as true servants, we would also serve one another that a watching world might see and know that indeed we are your disciples by the love that we have one for another. Lord, we ask these things in the great and holy and matchless name of Jesus, our Lord.